Good morning. I'm Matt, one of the pastors here at the Village Church. I'm glad to be with you this morning. We have started uh, last week a new sermon series. We're entitled, uh, we entitled Big Questions. Big questions. So we're looking at big questions about faith and about God and about the Bible. And what we've chosen to do is look at seven of the biggest questions that we can find about faith and God and the Bible. Seven of the biggest questions that we'll also be addressing on Sunday evenings in our open forum series. We're going to be having times uh, during this month, uh, every Sunday evening. Many of you are part of that open forum series. We'll be addressing these questions. And what we've chosen to do is take in seven of the most common questions that people really have about faith and God and the Bible. And and bring those questions this Sunday morning. Ground ourselves in the passage of Scripture and do our best to see the answers that God has given us. And what we find is that these are big questions. They're big questions and they're good questions, but we have oftentimes believed some big lies about these questions. And what we're going to find over the course of the next seven weeks, I believe we found it last week, is that there are actually some bigger answers. There, although there are big questions and we believe some big lies about these things, that there are even bigger answers and that our God is big enough for any question that we have. Last week, the question was, should the Bible really be trusted? Should the Bible really be trusted? And if you weren't with us last week, we found lots of reasons that we should trust the Bible and lots of categories of reasons we should trust the Bible. But ultimately, at the end, we came to a place where we said, ultimately, we trust the Bible because we trust Jesus. We trust the Bible because we trust Jesus. We look at the words of Jesus and we look at the life of Jesus. What we have to conclude is that Jesus trusted the Bible more than anyone in the history of the world. Jesus said he trusted the Bible. Jesus proved with his life that he trusted the Bible. And so ultimately, when we're asking the question, should the Bible really be trusted? It really comes down to, should Jesus really be trusted? And most people, many people, if not most people, believe that Jesus should be trusted, even if they haven't believed in him in a saving kind of way like we have as Christians, how much more so for us we should believe the Bible because we believe Jesus. And if we believe and trust the Bible because we believe and trust Jesus, we believe and trust the storyline of the Bible. We believe and trust the storyline of the Bible. And if you're a Christian, you know the basic storyline of the Bible. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want to give it to you in four quick movements. The storyline of the Bible is this, that in the beginning, Jesus created all things, that he was there in the beginning, that all things were created by him and through him, Paul says. And in the beginning, he created everything perfect and placed our first parents there in the garden, Adam and Eve. And they had everything that they needed. And it was a world free from sin, free from evil, free from suffering, free from harm, free from anything that was less than God's best for them. But our parents weren't content with that. They actually believed a big lie in the beginning, that God was hiding something from them, that there was something better for them outside of what God had told them. And so they disbelieved God. They disobeyed God. They disrespected God. They dethroned God in a sense, and they became the God of their own lives. And in that moment, the Bible teaches that sin entered the world and suffering entered the world and evil entered the world and everything that's opposite of all the goodness that God has for us and created us for. The second movement is that God um, wasn't, the third movement is rather that God wasn't content to leave us that way, not creating everything good, seeing sin and evil enter the world, but what God would come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He wouldn't leave us in a world filled with sin and evil and suffering and everything opposite of the goodness that he has for us, but that he would come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he would live a life without sin. He would leave a sinless place in heaven, come into a sin-filled world, a world filled with evil, that he'd live around evil. He'd be around sin. He'd live a life without sin on our behalf, that he'd die on the cross in our place and for our sin, that Jesus would take all the punishment for our sin, 
from God on himself on the cross. And that three days later, he would raise from death to prove who he was and what he said. And as Christians, we believe that now we have a hope of heaven because Jesus has told us that. And the final movement in the story is that one day Jesus is coming again. Is that good news for us as Christians? Is that good news for us as Christians? One day Jesus is coming again. It's not the end of the story. Jesus is returning. I know many of us are thinking about that in terms of some of the current events in Israel. It's a whole separate sermon, right? But Jesus is returning again. And when he returns, we call it the consummation. Jesus is going to make everything right. All evil, all suffering, all injustice, all done with once and for all. And when Jesus does that, he will take the people that have placed their faith and their hope and their trust in him with him to be with him forever in a place the Bible calls heaven. And he will send the people that have not placed their faith and hope and trust in him and do not want to be with him in a place the Bible calls hell. It's an amazing story. And the most difficult part of the story of God as revealed in the Bible is the part about hell. And this morning, um, I have the, um, the opportunity to talk with all of us about, about that part of the story, the story about hell. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says it a way that I, I, think, I think I kind of feel, to be honest. He says, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. If it lay in my power but has the full support of scripture as we'll find this morning. And especially of our Lord's own words, we'll find that this morning. It has always been held by Christendom and has been the support of reason or has the support of reason. We'll find that this morning. If a game is played, the game of life, it must be possible to lose it. And I just want to stand in front of you and say, as much as, as professing Christians, we like C.S. Lewis may want to do away with the doctrine of hell. We might want to get that part out of the story. We can't do away with hell any more than we can do away with Jesus. We can't do away with hell as a doctrinal reality of what we believe as Christians any more than we would do away with Jesus. Because Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And you might say, well, I don't like that. And I would say, I'm not sure I like it all that much either. And I would also say, like, I, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it, right? I'm not, I'm not writing the mail this morning. I'm just delivering it for you, and I'm delivering it to you. That is a hard reality. And maybe some of you came this morning because someone invited you because this is a question you've been having, or you saw it on our social media feed, or someone told you, we're going to be talking about this, and you wanted to hear about it, and you're wondering, why would a loving God like Jesus create a place like hell? And it's a good question. The Bible has good answers. Maybe the first question is, well, what kind of place is hell? What kind of place would Jesus describe hell to be like? And this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And, and in that parable, Jesus is giving us a picture of what hell is like. And I think Jesus is genius to do this in story. Jesus often taught in stories and parables. Parables are short stories with big points, big truths. And we're gonna find four big truths this morning about the reality of what hell is like. And underneath each one of those big truths, we're gonna ask the question, why would a loving God like Jesus create a place like this? And we have big questions. We be believe big lies, but there are bigger answers. And we're gonna look at some of them this morning, starting with the first one. The first big truth from this little story is this, that hell is a place of conscious punishment. That hell is a place of conscious punishment. It says in verse 24, 
And he called out the rich man that is, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. The hard reality is that Jesus used conscious and physical terms to describe hell. When Jesus talked about hell, Jesus talked about hell in these terms. He said there would be weeping, and whether that's because someone's in pain or someone that's in regret or someone's in sorrow, that there would be weeping. Jesus said that there would be gnashing of teeth, whether that's because someone's angry or someone's frustrated or someone's in turmoil. It's a physical reality. Jesus said that there would be unquenchable fire, and I don't know exactly what that means, but we get a picture of what it does mean. A furnace of fire, outer darkness. These are all, some people say, metaphors, but as you look at the teaching of Jesus, Jesus very much so uses physical realities to describe a place like hell, that it's a, a conscious punishment. And you might say, well, why would a loving God like Jesus create a place like this, a place of conscious punishment? And when we ask that question, many of us have believed the lie that he didn't. That either hell doesn't exist or hell's not really that bad. And I just want to say, you've probably heard before, if, if, if I was the devil, if you were the devil, if, if I was the devil, th this is the lie that I would want to propagate. I mean, this is what I would be cramming down all the news outlets. I'd be, I'd be pushing ads on social media. Like I'd be blog posting about this all the time. I would be throwing it all out there to get you to believe that hell doesn't exist or that it's not that bad. The greatest lie is that hell doesn't exist. The second greatest lie is it's not as bad as you think. Matter of fact, some people actually think it's gonna be sort of a good time. A recent Gallup poll in 2021 said that actually 75% of Americans do believe in heaven and 62% of Americans do believe in hell. Before I um, touch the point I wanna make, it was interesting in this study, 1% of atheists believe in hell. Isn't that interesting? Do you get that with me this morning? 1% of atheists believe in hell? 75% of us believe in heaven, 62% of us believe in hell, and I think there's a good reason for that gap. We don't want to believe in hell. We want to believe the lie. We want to believe the lie that it doesn't exist, or we want to believe the lie that it's actually not that bad. And yet Jesus says hell is real. It does exist, and Jesus says it's really bad. And so the question remains, why would a loving God like Jesus create a place like hell, a place of conscious punishment? And I think there are many reasons. I've tried to distill it down for the sake of time this morning, too. I think the best reason, and I think it's this, that Jesus created hell to justly judge and punish evil and sin. That Jesus is good, and Jesus is loving, and Jesus is also just, and that Jesus created hell to justly judge and punish evil and sin. If evil is done consciously, and it is, and if our sin is committed consciously, and it is, then it actually makes rational sense, as C.S. Lewis pointed out earlier this morning, that, that the consequence for conscious evil and conscious sin would be conscious punishment. And if God exists and he does, I believe he has to be loving. We believe he has to be loving. And if God exists and he does and he's loving, he also has to be just, because to be loving without being just is not loving at all. 
When we look at people that say that they're loving, but they don't love justice, that's not love at all. It's license at best, and it's hatred at worst. You have to hate someone to not want justice for them. If someone did something to my family or your family or someone that you love, and there was never justice and you were fine with it, no one around you would describe that as loving. If you were a father and someone harmed your family in this kind of way, harmed your children in the most unspeakable kind of way, like we have seen recently and heard about recently on the news, and you did not care and you did not want justice and it did not matter to you, you do not love your family. We understand as human beings that love and justice go together and they do go together in the character of God. And because Jesus loves people that are created in his image, he has created a place like hell to justly judge sin and evil. And that starts with the, the person that embodies evil, as it's been said. The devil, the Bible calls him the evil one, the father of lies, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, the God of this world, the God of this age, the thief who comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. In Jesus' teaching, he says, then he will say to those on the left in the parable of the sheep and the goat, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. What? Prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and demons deserve hell. It is a just punishment for evil. Hell was not prepared for people. It was prepared for the devil and for demons. And the devil who was deceived, Romans Revelation 20, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where there were beasts and the false prophet were. They were tormented night and day forever and ever. But the hard reality for us as human beings is the devil is not the only one responsible for the evil in the world. Jesus says we contribute to the evil and the suffering in the world through our sin. Don't take my word for that. You should take Jesus' word for that. He's more reliable than I am. Mark 7, 21 to 23. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus is covering a lot. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is saying, we sin in thought and word and in deed. Read that list and you'll see all of it. And what's inside of us, sinful nature and tendencies, evil thoughts and desires, they're not only within us, they're not only, we don't only think these things, we say them and we act out on them. And this is not what Jesus wants for us. Which is why he told his disciples this in the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know if you've ever seen it this way before, but he says, Forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who are indebted to us. That's not like money debt. That's like people that are indebted to us. We've sinned against them. They've sinned against us. So sin is involved. Evil's involved. And lead us not into temptation. Don't let us do the same thing, but deliver us from evil because sin and evil are connected. Sin is evil. Sin propagates evil. Sin allows evil. Sin is Part and parcel of evil in the world. All of the evil in the world is a result of sin. So Jesus says, don't lead us in that way to temptation to sin and be connected with all that evil, but deliver us from evil. Jesus tells his disciples this because he knows the effects of sin. He knows the impact of sin and evil, and he knows that it's so much greater than we think it is. 
Jesus' brother, James, says it this way, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And, and I don't know if it looks like this, but I think it might look something like this next slide, this, this progression. That, that you, it starts with lust, that there's lust in our hearts and we lust in our hearts, in our minds. And our, our lust leads us to a place where we engage things like pornography. And when we engage that, it causes us to objectify people's bodies who've been created in the image and likeness of God. And if you objectify people long enough, you begin seeing them as less than people, which is why you abuse them or you rape them or you do horrible things to them sexually because, well, because it all started with lust. And the question is, where do we, we draw the line? What is sin? What is evil? What deserves hell? Which one of those deserves it in your mind? It all starts in one place and it all leads to that place eventually if it's not checked and dealt with. Lack of self-control leads to things like drunkenness which leads to things like anger, which leads to things like abuse. Again, where would you draw the line? What would deserve it? Coveting leads to greed, which leads to hoarding, which leads to marginalization and poverty, which eventually leads to death. You know, people actually die because they don't have a place to live and things to eat. And this stuff is evil and it's sinful. And on the one side of those arrows, you and I are, are, are all part of it. All sin in the world is done consciously until, until we get so good at it that we become consciously unconscious about it in a sense. We become unconsciously competent in it. And if you're familiar with competency scales and how those progressions go, you know, eventually your competencies go to a point where you become unconsciously competent at something. You're really good at something and you don't even think about it. And the Bible says that human beings are really good at sin. That we have become unconsciously competent at sinning. We do it all the time and we don't even think about it and we're really good at it. Why would a loving God like Jesus create a place like, like this, a place of conscious punishment? Because Jesus created hell to justly judge and punish evil and sin, and he's good to do so. And I say, okay, <laughs> this is a hard reality, but I, I guess I get it when you say it that way. I can see that, that makes sense, but is in hell more than that? And I say, yeah, it is. The second point Jesus makes in this parable is that hell is a place of eternal separation. It's not only a place of conscious punishment, but it's a place of eternal separation. The parable describes it this way, starting in verse 25, where it says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things in Lazarus and like manner bad things. But how is he comforted here? And you, now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that one who would pass from here to there would not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This is the one line from Hotel California that's partially true. You can check in anytime you'd like, but you can never leave. The lie might be that hell is real and that it's really bad, but it doesn't last forever. Because a just God would never punish people for sins that are committed in a finite context. 
I grew up Italian Roman Catholic, at least I didn't grow up that way. My, my mom's family did, and I've been to a lot of those services, and I understand the doctrine a bit. I've talked to my cousins a lot about this, and the way Catholics try to solve this problem was with a doctrine called purgatory, right? That you, you go to this sort of intermediary place, and you, 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 you suffer enough. And at, at some point, you've suffered enough to pay for the sins that, you know, you've, you've committed in your lifetime, and then, then everything gets better. Some Christians um, try to deal with this by, by dealing with the doctrine we call annihilationism, where the idea is that, um, that, that after death, you, uh, you exist for some period of time, but then eventually, like, you're just kind of like dust. You just, like, disintegrate. You just cease to exist because, well, that's, that, that's more comfortable. And there's another view um, that people that call themselves the Christian universalists hold. And let me just make a clarification. Um, Christian and universalist is, uh, is actually a contradiction of terms. Um, those, those two things don't go together. They never go together, Christian and universalist. So if you're a Christian universalist, I'm going to say you're either a Christian or a universalist, but there's no such thing as a Christian universalist. Does that make sense? But there is a position today that claims to be Christian universalist that says, well, everyone eventually goes to heaven because after life, everyone's going to see Jesus. And Jesus is so loving that he's going to seek to reform people. And they're going to be reformed because he's powerful enough to reform them. So love wins and everyone gets in. Everyone goes to heaven, no matter what. And I'd say, um, you know, I don't know. Um, look at the reformation that happens in the prison system and just think about that for a moment. Um, think about that for a moment. Like, do people actually want to be rehabilitated um, what are the rates of re re recidivism? Like, does this really work? It doesn't work in the natural, and it doesn't work there either. And the Bible says nothing about it. I'd say one of the problems, all of these, I think they're well-meaning fixes. I think people just, they want to try to fix this problem. Why is it eternal separation? I got to fix it with purgatory or annihilationism or some kind of Christian universalism. Like, I got to fix that problem that it's forever. And I think it's well-meaning in some sense, but the problem misses this idea of the punishment needing to fit the crime. We all know that, that that's just, that the punishment has to fit the crime and that when we sin against an eternal God, the reality is that there is an eternal consequence. And when we commit sin and evil, we don't just commit it against one another, although we do. We commit it against people created in the image and likeness of God. We actually create, we actually sin and commit evil against an infinite and holy and perfect eternal God. That's what David said. David did some pretty horrible things. David um, took a man's wife that wasn't his wife, decided he wanted her to be his wife. David decided that um, after she was pregnant, he needed to get rid of the husband, and so he had him murdered. So he's a, an adulterous murderer who's conniving schemes to murder a husband so he can steal a wife. It's horrible. But David obviously knew that he sinned against God, primarily against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David obviously sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. Primarily he sinned against God and he knows it. And guess what? I think we know it. We know that God has a right to justice when he is wronged, just like we have a right to justice when we are wronged. We look at that and we like, there has to be some kind of justice for that. We understand that. And God understands it. David understands it. You and I, I think rationally we understand this. God deserves justice just as much as for being wrong, just as much as we do for being wrong. And when we wrong an eternal, infinite God, 
the justice has to be eternal as well. You might say, well, why would a loving God like Jesus create a place like this, a place of eternal judgment and separation? And I might say, well, because not only does God love us enough to to proportionally punish evil and sin, but God's justice cares enough to not only proportionally punish evil and sin, but to separate himself and us from sin. God wants nothing to do with that. And God wants you to have nothing to do with that. God wants nothing to do with evil and sin. Matter of fact, God can't be in the presence of evil and sin in this sense because he's holy and he's perfect. But God doesn't want you to be in the presence of evil and sin. And so there has to be a separation and that separation is eternal because he is an eternal God who's invited you into an eternal relationship with himself. And he separates himself from anything other than that. You might say, okay, well, again, when you lay it out that way, I, I can see this. I can see that, it, it ha- that conscious sin and evil requires conscious punishment. That makes sense. And I can see how and sin against an eternal, infinite God, rationally, I, I, I guess that makes sense, right? That, that that sin has to be paid for in an eternal sense because the, the punishment has to fit the crime. Like rationally, I, I guess I might get that, but is that, is that really just, is that, isn't there more? And I'd say, yeah, there is more. The third principle we get from this story is that, that hell is a place that is just that hell is a place that is just. It's, it's, it's not only eternal separation and it's not only conscious punishment, but, it, but it's just in both of those things. And the story gives us a little clue to it. If you saw it in verse 24, where it says, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue for I'm anguish in this flame. He says, have mercy on me. And the, the really clever thing about this story and the story that in Jesus' teaching of it is that the man, the rich man in the story, he never, he never complains about hell. I mean, he complains about hell, but, but he never said he's not supposed to be there. Like, there's nothing in the story that, that he's complaining and saying, why am I in this place of torment? Like, I don't deserve to be here. Like, I was mostly a good person. I did all these good things. Like, yeah, I had wealth and yeah, I, I probably idolized that. And yeah, I trusted my riches instead of you. And yes, I made money my idol. And yes, I didn't think I need you because I had enough things in my own life to make myself happy, to shield myself from harm and most of the evil in the world. Like I lived in a planned neighborhood. It was one of the top places in the whole country. Like I was safe. My money is what kind of I trusted. And I knew you were there, but I, I was mostly trying to do good things, not evil things. And, and I don't deserve to be here. Like the man, the man doesn't say anything about that. He, he complains about the reality that he's in, but he never says, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be here. Hell is a place that's just because we've committed sin and evil against an eternal God and people that are created in his image. And I want to just say as clearly as I can, and we all know it. We studied the book of Ecclesiastes a while back, and and it says in it that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We have an understanding that there's something beyond us, 
there's someone beyond us. And all of us, no matter where we are, no matter if we know who is that someone behind us, uh, beyond us, like we all know that that's a reality. We all know. We all know. And on this side of eternity, we know that because we all have a conscience. And many, if not most of us, most people choose to just ignore their conscience. And the hard reality is that they won't, they won't be able to do that then. We won't be able to do that then. We'll have to agree with God then that like your, your punishment is just. We know it now, but we ignore it. You're not gonna be able to ignore it then. <laughs> and please, if you have not settled this, please hear me this morning. You will not be able to ignore it then. You will be like this rich man who is in that place and you know that it's just. Please, I'm begging you, just consider the reality that is just on this side, please. The Bible says that it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. And when we die, we will see Jesus and we will see him in all of his holiness and his majesty and his perfection and instantly we will know that he's perfectly just and holy and good and blameless and that his judgments are just, just as he is. And you might say, I don't like that. I don't like that. You might say, if Jesus was really loving and if he was really just, and if hell was really just, he would warn us on this side of eternity about what's happening on that side of eternity. If it was really just, he would tell us. And I just want to humbly say, he did. Yes, he did. Jesus told us this more than anyone else in the history of the world. Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone. Jesus warned us more than anyone. If he was just, he would tell us. I want to tell you, he did. If you're a parent, you know this. You tell your kid, if you do this, it's going to be this. If you do that, it's going to be that. And if they do it, it's that. And it's just because you've told them. Jesus has warned us. You might say, well, if Jesus was truly loving and if he was truly just and if hell was a just place, then he wouldn't just tell us about hell and warn us about hell he would give us a better alternative. Like, like when a parent tells a child, don't do this, do this. Don't go this way. There's a way better way for you to go and it's over here. And I wanna just tell you, he has. Jesus has given us a better alternative. It's called heaven. We don't have to choose to be separated from God forever in a place the Bible calls hell. There is an alternative. Jesus has warned us about hell and he's offered us an incredible alternative that we can't even fathom with our minds in a place that Jesus calls heaven, eternally connected, not separated from him. And I said, well, look, I wouldn't actually know how to get there. So like, if he warns us about hell, but he offers us a place like heaven, he's got to do something. If he's really loving, he's really just. And if hell's really just, he's got to warn us. He's got to give us a better alternative. And he's got to do something crazy to help get me there because I don't know how to get there. I want to say that's, that's already happened also. He's already done that too. And if you're not yet a Christian, we call that the gospel. We believe that Jesus actually laid down his life for us. 
that God entered human history in the person of Jesus Christ to tell us this, to warn us about hell and to offer us the gift of heaven and relationship with him. And to say, I'm gonna show you the way. One of the disciples literally asked Jesus, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus said, no, 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 you do know. I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. You wanna get to heaven, follow me. I'm going ahead of you. I came from there, I'm going back and one day I'm returning. Follow me and I am the way. If we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, God the Father will see his punishment for sin, which is just and loving, as placed on Jesus instead of placed on us, placed on Jesus on Calvary instead of on us for eternity. That, that's a crazy offer. Like that's, it's almost unfathomable <laughs> if you think about it. Ultimately, hell is just because people that go there have rejected the warnings. Please don't reject the warning this morning. They have failed to repent and recognize the severity of their sin. Please don't do that this morning. They've rejected the alternative. Please, please don't do that this morning. And they've ultimately rejected the offer that Jesus has given them in himself. And I'm, pl I'm pleading with you, please don't do that. Some of you will, because the story says, he said to them, I beg you, I'm begging you right now. And in this story, he says, I beg you, Father, to send him to my house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and they have the prophets. That's the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus is saying, they have the Bible. Let them hear the Bible. Let them open the Bible. Let them read about it, right? And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes back from the dead, then they will repent. Then they will recognize their sin. Then they will turn from their sin. Then they will heed the warning about hell. Then they'll take God up on his offer to heaven. Then they'll want to be in relationship with God. Then they'll want to submit themselves to God here so they don't have to be submitted to the punishment of God there. Then that will all happen. And he says, no. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the warnings from the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the unfortunate and hard reality, maybe even in this room, is there are some people that are hearing this and they'll just continue to reject it. Even after someone like Jesus is raised from the dead. There's one final lesson that we learned about heaven this morning, and it's this one. It's the one that has weighed most heavy on me. This is a horrible sermon to give. I'm, Hell is a place we don't want anyone to be. Hell is a place that you do not want anyone to be. He said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Think about that for a moment. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, 
lest they also come into this place of torment. You know, the grossest lie today is that somehow Jesus wants people to go to hell. That he gets some sort of sick pleasure out of it. Out of sending people there. And that Christians like us secretly believe the same thing. Like we secretly like want people to go to hell and we, we actually get some kind of sick pleasure out of it, actually. And that, that lie is actually propagated in our culture quite a bit. And the first thing I want to say is, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. As with all these lies, they're just so shallow. I mean, can't you see that? Like, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. Jesus warned people more than anyone. So how does it even make any logical sense that Jesus actually wants people to go there? It just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a dumb argument. It's a dumb lie. Like, how do we believe that? doesn't make any sense and it's not in the line with the character of Jesus the apostle Peter who is one of Jesus' best friends wrote this the Lord that is Jesus is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but he's patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance Jesus didn't just wish that people wouldn't perish. He did something about it. I think for a lot of us, we can wish that our family members aren't going to perish. We can wish that our coworkers won't perish. We, we sit here and we're like, oh, Lord, I, just, I wish that they wouldn't you know, perish. And the question is, are we going to do anything about it? Jesus did not just wish that people would not spend eternity separated from him in the place the Bible calls hell, Jesus did something about it. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place for our sins so that we could place our faith and our hope and our trust in him. So that through faith, we would believe that God actually places all of our punishment for our sin on Jesus on the cross so that we don't have to be punished for it for eternity. It's incredible. Jesus did something about it. He raised from death and history records it. Look it up different sermon, come back at Easter, <laughs> to prove it. I think the question is, what about us? Like, what, what, are, what, are, what are we willing to do? This was the most convicting part of this whole thing for me the last two weeks. What am I willing to do so that the people I know and love would know about the truth of Jesus and heaven and hell and that they wouldn't perish? I want to tell you that if you go home today and you read through the New Testament, you read all the words of Jesus on hell, you will find that Jesus did not talk about hell mostly, in my estimation, you read it, you tell me, Jesus did not talk about hell mostly to scare non-believers out of hell, although that's a nice side benefit, and if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, you should be scared. You should be terrified. You should be terrified. I'm just telling you, you should, like more than anything you see on the news, more than anything that you hear about, more than the grossest, you should be terrified. But that's not mainly why Jesus talked about hell. Jesus talked about hell mainly, if you look at the passages, to warn professing believers and to cause them to think through, do I really believe this? 
And so if you're not yet a Christian this morning, I want you to know I'm talking to Christians right now, not just to you. And Jesus is mostly talking to people who would profess they believe. Jesus talked mostly about hell, mostly to people that were professing they believed in it already. And Jesus is saying one of the reasons is to, to check you and go, you really believe this stuff? That's what the parable of sheep and the goats is all about. And if you're a Christian, you know it. The second reason I believe Jesus talks about hell when you look at it in context and all the times that he did, he talks about it also to motivate professing believers, Christians like us, to talk about hell as much as he did. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. I, I hardly ever want to talk about hell, although I'm willing because there's no good news without bad news. I would rather talk about the bad news, good news, but you can't talk about the good news even if you don't share the bad news. So we're in on the bad news because we are in on the good news. And those things are hand in hand. There is no good news without the bad news. Jesus wants to motivate us. And the most motivating thing for me was, was a story that I was reminded of this week that, that I don't want you to feel the weight of any kind of guilt and shame over, but I do want you to feel it. I want you to feel it. You, there is no shame and there's no guilt because there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. I just want you to get this perspective this morning as we close our time together. There's a guy named Pendulette, and he's, he's part of this magician team, uh, Penn and Teller. And I've never seen them. Maybe if you like magic or whatever, you've seen them. But there's a story recently about a, a businessman who actually connected with him and, and gave him a Bible. And I read about this story, and it's amazing because the, the, the guy, like, like, Penn rejects it, like, right? Like, he rejects the Bible. It's like, yeah, no, thank you. Um, but, but then he says this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. And I just want to let that sink in for just like two seconds because our world is telling us, don't do that. You're a proselytizer. Don't be proselytizing to me. Like, like our culture makes us think that people will respect us so much less if we proselytize them, right? If we tell them about these things, we try to scare them into heaven and out of hell by the words of Jesus. Like, don't proselytize to me. That's disrespected in our cultural context. And I just want to tell you, that is a lie. That is not true. There are a lot of people like him who do respect that. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone? Not to proselytize. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I just want to say Village Church... Hell is a place that you don't want anyone to go. And Jesus didn't wish, just wish that no one would go there. Jesus did something about it. And I am, I am so convicted myself as one of your pastors. Like, I need to do more about this. And do the, do, 
in the end, does it all depend on Jesus and not me? 100%. Could I do more than I am? 100%. Should I think about this more? Absolutely. Have I failed at this? You know that I have. You know that you have. And I'm not, that's not an indictment. I'm just telling you the truth. You already know that. I'm not accusing you. I'm just reminding you. Like, if we love them, we will share the good news with them because the good news is really, really good. The good news is that we don't have to be punished for eternity for our sin because Jesus was already punished for our sin on Calvary. And if you're not yet a Christian and you, you're here and you're like, wow, you, you, you're a little tense this morning. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't, I'm probably not going to do a message like this on hell for a while. So there you go. Like it's, it's horrible. And at the same time, it's incredibly beautiful. There is no good news without the bad news. Jesus has saved us from this. And I know that you know that if you're a Christian, and I know that you've heard that a thousand times, but let me just remind you again. Jesus has saved you from conscious punishment for your sin and your evil. Jesus has saved you from eternal separation from him. Jesus has saved you from the justice of God that you and I deserve. We don't have to be punished for our sin for eternity because Jesus took the punishment for our sin on Calvary. Lastly, as Reagan or the band comes and we're going to sing, I, I know that some of you are thinking, well, what about, what about the people that I know that I, I think, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they're with Jesus or I'm pretty certain they're not with Jesus. And I just, I understand the intellectual arguments, Matt, but I just can't get past the emotional part of it. And I would just, as humbly as I could say, like, I would just say, I understand that. I had to go through all of that for the last two weeks, <laughs> thinking about this for all of you. And I, I, told, I get that. Two things really quickly. I would say, one, you don't know. Like if you have shared the gospel with them, you don't know. And you don't know who else has shared the gospel with them. I have heard so many stories. You don't know the chaplain that shared, showed up in their hotel, in their hospital room. You don't, you, you don't know what happened in the end. You, you don't know, you, you don't really know. But what you do know is the people that are in front of you that you most likely know at this point. Yeah, I know. They don't know. And they need you to tackle them. At some point, they need you to tackle them. At some point. There comes a point where you need to tackle them. Jesus, thank you for tackling us. Thank you for being so good and faithful. We already sang this morning, the way you come after us, you, your love never fails. You keep coming. And there's a point in all of our lives where you came and you tackled us. You, you helped us to see who you were. You gave us faith to believe. Lord, you have been so good and faithful. And I, and I pray somehow by your grace as we sing that you would help us to see your goodness and your faithfulness, even in creating a place like hell where you will justly judge and punish evil and sin. Thank you for being loving enough not to allow evil and sin to go unpunished. Thank you for loving us enough to take the punishment for our sin on yourself. Thank you for all of your goodness. Thank you for all of your faithfulness. And I pray that you help all of us to see your goodness and faithfulness. 
in the rest of our time together this morning. We ask it in your name, Jesus, and for your sake. 